relational. And so I just want to kind of grant that as we go in to open God's word, um, I don't want it to come across as just some trite presentation about what the Bible has to say about suffering. This is the word of God for you and for me in the midst of suffering and in preparation for what undoubtedly will come in the form of different and various trials in this life. But be encouraged. This world is full of, this life is full of difficulty, but Jesus says he's overcome the world. So take hope in him, and let me pray as we start our time this morning. Uh, God, it can be really difficult to know uh, how to pray and what to say in moments where uh, pain and trial uh, confront us with a particular strength. But I'm grateful that we gather um, and we pray to a God who hears prayer. Uh, You are the refuge for the broken. Uh, You are the hope for every single person and every tribe and nation and tongue. You are the healer of the broken. And whether it be in this life or the life to come, God, you can, and ultimately for your people, you will provide healing. And so I pray for an increase of faith for uh, Mr. Bays, for Pam and Michael Dyson, for Randy Lydia Long. God, we pray that uh, their faith would be strengthened in the midst of their trial. Uh, Our desire would be that their pain would be removed. Um, But we do ask that you would draw near to them as they draw near to you. We do pray for Michael that tomorrow his chemo wouldn't have any uh, negative impact beyond just the medicine itself. And that he'd be able to be strengthened and that you'd grant he and Pam uh, wisdom for her, particularly as she considers going back to work. And would you be with Randy and Lydia, strengthen her physically that she can get home. And God, uh, for Mr. Bays, he's in the hospital Um, Even now, I pray that you'd minister to his heart in the quietness of his own thoughts. Would you remind him of the truth he's meditated on for decades and flood back into his mind just the greatness of your love for him. And we love you. Uh, We can be expectant that now as we open your word, you're going to speak to us. And so I pray that you'd use me um, as a vessel of your grace to the people that sit before me whom I love. Uh, I love you, Jesus grateful that we have life in you, we have hope in you, and no matter how we feel this morning, no matter what circumstances tell us, would you reveal to us the truth of your word right now for the sake of your great name. Amen. Amen. All right, go ahead and grab your Bibles. We're going to go to the book of James. We're going to start our journey through the book of James. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab a chair Bible. It's on page 950, I believe, which actually isn't labeled. So if you run it at 951, you know where you're at. All right. So we are going to start our, our journey through the book of James, and I want to kind of give a little bit of an introduction, kind of get our bearings a little bit. If you're new with us, we make it our pattern to preach verse by verse through books of the Bible. We've been in topical land for a little while, and, and we're going back into preaching through the book of James uh, this morning. We finished Second Peter a few months ago, and uh, James is the oldest of the 27 New Testament books. Uh, which is interesting because as you think about it, uh, being written in the first century, it deals with topics that were being faced, that the, the believers in the earliest church were, were being faced with. And so, and it's, and it's comforting in some ways to know that much of their experience, based on what's shared in this letter, isn't all too much different from our own personal experience. As we deal with things like, where do we go when we need wisdom? As we think about how faith interacts with how we treat the poor and how we deal with our speech and the 
the tongue, how we treat people fairly, how we pursue humility, the importance of being honest and not loving the world and praying for the sick and visiting orphans and widows. All these things are addressed in this letter, among many other things. So James is an immensely practical book, like so much so that many people over the years have called James the Proverbs of the New Testament. And you'll see why as we journey through the book, because a lot of times we'll be taking brief, short chunks, more so than we might in other New Testament books, because there's little snippets of wisdom. We're going to read four verses this morning that kind of illustrate that reality, that in very much this book is kind of a Proverbs of the the New Testament. If you read the Old Testament book of Proverbs, you know what I'm talking about. Because it can be hard to define a little bit the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament, the structure of the book. You find yourself just kind of like, where are we? And there's so many different thoughts. And there's a way in which the book of James can feel a little bit like that at times. And if you read much of the New Testament, particularly in Paul's letters, you know that most of the time when Paul writes a letter, he deals a lot of times in the first half, quite literally, of the book with theology. So he builds like a, a doctrinal position on the gospel. He shares deep, meaningful truth about what the gospel is. And then the second half of the book will be kind of the practice that flows out of that theology. And so what's interesting about the book of James is he just launches right into practice. And it can be a little bit disorienting. I heard one commentator talk about James probably wouldn't be super popular as a pastor like these days. He'd probably be called a legalist because he talks about how obedience really matters to the people of God. And so for that reason, as we launch into this, you know, we need to be confronted with the fact that out of 128 verses, like 50 to 60 of them, depending on how you count, have commands to the Christian, like specific direct commands called imperatives. Almost half the verses in this book have commands. And so some of you may immediately feel this sense of resistance, like, man, Matt, I'm not really interested in a bunch of do's and don'ts. Like, I don't want to just hear about my behavior. Like, let me, let me know about God. I would just say, well, don't, don't move too quickly. Because what the Bible shows us really clearly is that when you come to know God, when you trust in him by faith, like that real faith leads to real change. That real faith leads to real action in your life. Real steps of obedience, often that's difficult. Real change, real action. John Calvin said it this way. He says, faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is not alone. And James makes this statement really clear in ways that people have wrestled with for centuries now. James argues that faith is shown by works. In fact, he says it is dead without them. That's how significant obedience and the working out of our faith is to the, the faith of the believer. True saving faith is faith in action. That's the essence of this book. So now, with all that said, we're going to read James chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and that's where we'll spend our time this morning. Why don't you join me there? This is God's word from the book of James for us. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. 
Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This is God's Word. So this very first line of this book gives us a chance to kind of hear the introduction to both the author and the audience. So first, as we talk about the author. So James, more than likely, James is the half-brother of Jesus, and he's writing to the, the Jews in the dispersion. So most specifically, the dispersion is the Jews that were kind of pushed out of Jerusalem that we see in Acts chapter 8 due to persecution. So they've been scattered all throughout Palestine. And so he's writing this letter to comfort Jewish Christians who have been pushed out and are kind of living on the boundaries. And if you can put yourself in their shoes just for a moment, they're alienated from both Jews and Gentiles because they're Jewish Christians. They don't fit with the Jews because they're Christians. They don't fit with the Gentiles because the Gentiles don't know God. And so they're mostly poor. And this letter goes to that group of people. And the persecution in Acts chapter 8, you see in Acts 1-8 how Jesus says that to his apostles, his followers, that you're going to receive power from the Spirit. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the remotest part of the earth. And that persecution in Acts 8 is what pushes the people of God to those places. Judea, Samaria, the remotest part of the earth. And this letter is hitting that general audience. And the author, as I mentioned, James, is likely Jesus' half brother in the physical. So just let's, let's pause there just for a second because you have James's, Jesus' half-brother writing a letter that's in the Bible. Let's just think about James's experience just for a second. So, so James knew Jesus in his humanity greater than most people on the planet, right? As a brother. Saw him laugh. Saw him cry. I would say saw him complain, but he probably didn't do that. They ate meals together. They played together. They were brothers in the physical. So when you hear in John 7, 5, not even Jesus' brothers believed in him, I think we can have a little bit of sympathy for James, right? Because for your brother to go from sibling to savior... I mean, that's a pretty big leap. That's a pretty big jump. But you see, that's what happened. He had a difficult time but for that reason and other reasons, believing that Jesus, in fact, was the Messiah, this promised rescuer from of old. But when Jesus appeared to James and the rest of the disciples after his resurrection, which we see in 1 Corinthians 15, everything changed. And James's disbelief turned into devotion. So much so that he introduces himself in this letter as a bond slave to his brother, to his brother's fame, if you will. Devoted to spread the fame of the brother that he grew up with. How profound, right? It's kind of mind-blowing. If we move too quickly, we can kind of lose the significance of that. And there's really some, some real silent, kind of quiet, profound picture of godliness in this brief introduction. So James historically has been known as James the Just. 
We see in Acts 15, 13, James became the head of the church at Jerusalem. Galatians 2, 9, Paul calls James a pillar of the church in Jerusalem. And Eusebius, one of the historians of the early church, said this about him when observing or hearing a testimony from an early Christian. This is what was said about James. He used to enter alone into the temple and be found kneeling and praying for forgiveness for the people so that his knees grew hard like a camel's because of his constant worship of God, kneeling and asking forgiveness for the people. So from his excessive righteousness, he was called the just, James the just. What's really interesting about this, look at the greeting just one more time. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, that's the title he gives to himself. James the just, the righteous, this excessively righteous man is notable. He doesn't name drop in his introduction. He doesn't appeal to his relationship with Jesus as his brother or half-brother to give himself credibility or esteem in the eyes of those who would read his letter. Why is it significant? Here's why I'd say this. Here's why I'm accentuating this. This humility is one of the most significant demonstrations of holiness in the Christian's life. And the fact that James introduced himself as a bond slave of Jesus is a, is a profound display of humility. Because he could have connected to people like, hey, I'm the brother of Jesus, just trust me. I spent time with him, but he doesn't do that, right? Humility is one of the chief demonstrations of holiness. It's good for us to remember that. But the main idea, so in verses 2 through 4, this is where we'll spend the rest of our time. The main idea that I want to get across to you this morning is that trials promote joy because trials produce maturity. So that's what I would submit is the main point that James is getting across in these three verses. So he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. So notably, James doesn't say, if you encounter trials, you should count them joy. He says, when. When you, count, when, you cons- when you encounter trials, consider them joy. It's profoundly important for us to have a theology of suffering and trials before we find ourselves in the midst of trials and suffering. Let me say that one more time. Like, it's profoundly important, if I could just look each of you in the eye, because I believe this with all my heart, it is so important for a child of God to have a biblical understanding of trials and suffering before you find yourself in the midst of trials and suffering. And so that's why this morning is so important. That's why this message is so, that's why this text is so important because it orients us to the presence of and the purpose within the trials that we inevitably face. A biblical perspective of suffering strengthens our souls. Acts 14, Paul and Barnabas, notably, Paul was just stoned right before this. Verse 22, it says, Paul and Barnabas were strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Do you notice that? Strengthening the souls of the disciples. And what was part of their message? Through many tribulations we'll enter the kingdom of God. That's because the souls of the people of God are actually strengthened by understanding the nature, the presence of, and the purpose within trials. Jesus himself, in John 16, 33, says, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. 
and I don't want to go too far on this end, but the prosperity gospel that says you can name it and you can claim it and following Jesus is going to give you blessing in the physical and in the financial is blasphemous. It is so damaging because it misleads the hearts of people away from the scriptures, from this ballast, like in those just two brief verses. Like in this world, you will have tribulation. That's the word of Jesus. In this world, you will have difficulty. And if you prepare yourself for a life that you believe won't have difficulty, you will find yourself disappointed and disillusioned with the character of God. But when we realize, okay, difficulty isn't the exception, it's actually more like the rule, that at least gives us firm ground to stand on. And then God begins to kind of minister to us through his word to give us bearing as we go through the inevitable difficulties that run from the very severe to the practical inconveniences that we all face day by day. Trials of various kinds are an assumed reality. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And so, and that's, that's hard, right? It's hard to, it's hard to know that Hardships are a reality. That's a difficult enough reality to sink in this morning. I was like, Phew, okay, this life is going to be difficult in many ways. But what comes with it is, is, is pretty much ludicrous. Like it's, it's unnatural to look at those same things and count them joy, right? When you encounter these various trials, count them joy. These first century Christians were experiencing a lot of difficulty, displaced and rejected among their people and Gentiles alike. Most of them were poor. They didn't have a whole lot. So this command from James would have hit hard. I can only imagine them feeling somewhat like, hey, you're called James the Just, but you sound a little bit like James the Joker. Like you, you got jokes telling me to count this particular trial as joy. You can't be serious. I think we would feel that way. If this was like the intro to the letter, you'd be like, you got to be kidding me with this. I thought there was going to be comfort he was going to offer. And I think if we're honest, we feel much the same. When we encounter trials, God's word this morning is telling us we need to think of them as a source of joy. When we encounter a difficulty, we're to view it as a good and joyful thing, to count it joy. Romans chapter 5 says it this way, not only do we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, not only do we rejoice or overwhelmingly rejoice, exult in our salvation, same word is used, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. Unnatural. Supernatural. Supernatural, in fact, right? But let me just say this. There is a difference between joy and enjoyment. There's a distinction to be made between count it all joy and enjoy your trials. And notably, that second one is not present here. Consider trials joy. It doesn't say enjoy them. And those things are different. This isn't a call to pretend trials and difficulties are enjoyable and fun. Trials are painful and often dark. There's no joy in being chronically ill. There's no joy in having an unfaithful spouse. There's no joy in losing your job. There's no joy in losing a loved one. So hear me when I say this part. So it's not the substance, but the product of the, child, the trial that is a joy. 
It's not the, the nature of the trial, but the result of it that's the joy. It's not the essence of the trial, but the effect on, on us that is the joy for the people of God. It's what it produces in us. It's the reason we should count it joy. It's doing something. It's bringing about something in your life that apart from it would not happen. Count it all joy. Brothers and sisters, when you encounter various trials, the joy isn't from how the trial feels, or quite frankly, even from the anticipation that God will bring relief or release from the trial. It comes from what it produces in us. We count trials joy because of what they produce. Trials test our faith and produce steadfastness. James says, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So in this sense, trials have a creative capacity. They create steadfastness in the people of God, in our faith. Steadfastness, if I could kind of define the word for us, is an abiding, enduring faith. It's a, it's a gritty, tough faith that lasts. So trials create in us a stable, sturdy faith. That's why we're to count them joy. Trials test our faith, and they bring about a faith that remains. Romans chapter 5, that same passage I referred to at the beginning earlier. We rejoice, just like in our salvation, we rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, a proven character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. And some of you in this room work out. Most of us probably at some point have done some form of resistance training, whether it be with bands or with weights or running or whatever. Like, you know, to, to train your muscles, to get them stronger, what you have to do is you have to strain them. You have to give them resistance for them to grow increasingly strong. As if James is saying, like the muscle of your faith is strengthened through strain and resistance. The difficulty of practical experience in life will strengthen the, the muscle of your faith. So that it doesn't remain weak and feeble and not resilient. The muscles of faith are strengthened by resistance and having to overcome obstacles and difficulties. So in this remarkable, granted, difficult paradox, like the very things that rattle our faith are the same things that God uses to strengthen our faith. And you've probably been there. For me, the most severe trial I've been through in my life is losing my dad about 11 years ago to pancreatic cancer. I can assure you that was not a joy. But I can look back and through the lens of faith realize on the backside of that pain, I do trust God. I do, I do trust God. I trust his word. And it's disorienting and confusing. But it helps you realize, like, yeah, my faith is not just words. It's not just sermons. 
Like there's a stability that I have in Christ that the world can't offer me when my dad is dying of cancer. When you lose your job, if you don't have God to cling to, then there's nothing but a change of circumstance that's going to make you feel any better. And even at that, it'll be temporary. So my feet standing on God. The very things that rattle our faith, God uses to prove the genuineness of our faith and make it stronger. One author put it this way, there's no toughness without testing. There's no toughness. There's no gritty, tough faith without testing. First Peter chapter 1, we were in First Peter months ago. Peter comments on trials as well. He says, in this you rejoice in your salvation, that is, that though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Tested genuineness of faith happens in the middle of trial. Trials test our faith and produce steadfastness, and steadfastness promotes maturity. This is the last verse. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So we're using the ESV. Some of you may have the NASB, which I think probably translates it better because the word full and the word perfect in the ESV are actually the same word. They both mean perfect. So you could read it this way. Let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Trials pave the road to maturity because those trials produce steadfastness and a faith that remains and matures until the end. That's why we, we preach the Word of God. Like We preach Christ so that you can be mature. We can be mature as the people of God. Colossians 1.28 says we proclaim Jesus, admonishing every man, every man and or warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone complete or mature perfect, same word, in Christ. We looked at last week, this call to grow. Like, how do we know that God is at work in me? Is when we're growing. Like, the grace of God, not, it doesn't only save you, it changes you. It causes you to grow. That God has put leaders and different gifts in the body. You see in Ephesians 4.13, to, to build up the body until, until we all reach the measure of complete and perfect manhood to the ultimate and full stature of Jesus Christ. I was praying this morning, and I trust there's purpose in me being convicted when I'm preparing my sermon, not just so I can be self-indulgent and kind of throw my conviction upon you. My guess is there might be similar conviction for us. Because what this passage seems to mean for us is that we have to, in order to attain that sense of joy in the midst of trials, we have to consider maturity to be attractive. Because if we don't, if the end result is that steadfastness makes me ultimately and finally mature, that means in order for me to get joy from that, I have to see maturity as a legitimate and good place to go. Like, do I want to? Do I want to look more like Jesus? Like, is that a source of joy for me? And I would submit to you, I don't know that we're motivated enough by that. Because practically in the midst of this life, most of us, most of the time, 
We would see count it all joy when God delivers you from your various trials of all kinds. That would be where the joy comes. That doesn't mean we shouldn't pray for relief. We should. We see that later in the book of James. But if your ultimate joy is captured by, grounded in, something other than being conformed to the image of Jesus, it'll be a lesser joy than what's called for here. Steadfastness, enduring, permanent faith brings about spiritual maturity in the people of God. That means that by and by, by degrees over time, you and I look more and more like Jesus Christ. And if you don't find that appealing, you won't consider your trials joy. You just won't. That's the equation here. Steadfastness brings about a person looking more and more like Jesus. And if you don't think that's enough, joy will be really, really hard to come by. As I was praying this morning, I was confronted by that. I don't, I'm not motivated enough by maturity. Because when you read Romans 8, 28, that God works all things together for good for those who love him, for those who have been called according to his purpose. If you keep reading, that purpose is to be conformed into the image of his son. Do I want to be conformed to the image of his son? Do you want to be conformed to the image of his son? Does that bring you joy to experience that, to taste that, to see it in your life? And I would submit all of us need to move the needle in reference to how much joy we get from that proposition. And even that reality, I pray, as we grow and grow. Maturity doesn't satisfy me the way God wants it to. Becoming more and more like Jesus doesn't give me the joy the way it should. Now, as we finish off this morning, we're going to have a chance to take communion together. I want to make a couple connections to the life and to the sacrifice of Jesus before we go and take communion together. The book of Hebrews, if you're in your Bible, just flip to the left and go to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews sits right to the left, as it were, of James. We're going to read two passages from the book of Hebrews that I pray will help us just add some gravity to taking communion together. Go to Hebrews chapter 2. We'll be in verse 10. There's some kind of mind-blowing connections here. Because the word perfect, keeping in mind, this word perfect, maturity, completeness, the book of Hebrews shows us that Jesus himself was perfected through suffering. Mind-blowing. There's a way in which in his humanity that Jesus was perfected through the vehicle of his suffering. So why should we expect it to be any different for us? In Hebrews 2, verse 10, says, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. As I was thinking about this, I found myself just shaking my head in my office the other day reading these two passages. It is kind of mind-blowing. You know, Jesus would, in his humanity, come down to earth in order to live the perfect life that you and I could never live and suffer in our place. And this suffering it talks about in Hebrews 2.10 I would submit it's like an identification with the suffering of the people of God, but it's also an example of 
what it looks like to suffer in obedience to God. Being submitted to joyfully the Father's will. Jesus identifies with our suffering. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. You see that in Isaiah 53. And he provides us an example for enduring in suffering. Now now flip to the right in Hebrews to chapter 12. Because we're going to find the same word again in Hebrews chapter 12. A different form of it, but the same root word. Now if you know this section at all, It follows the hall of faith, and as if that hall of faith of all these Old Testament saints and martyrs and people who've gone before us, who have endured and followed God, it's like they they stand like this galley as you're running through life, like your cloud of witnesses cheering you on, keep following God, keep running, he's worth it, Jesus is better. Here's what we find in chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Okay, there's that word endurance. Family, life will get hard. And it will require endurance. In this moment, in the fleeing away from sin and seeking to run passionately for God, one of the things if not the cornerstone of us being allowed to do that, is in verse 2. It says, Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. There's that word again. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Here's some of what I gather from this, and I'll close with this and we'll take communion. Jesus could look beyond the anguish and abandonment of the cross and see what awaited him on the other side. The redemption of his people, resurrection life, restoration to the Father's side. The joy that was set before him was not the cross itself. The cross was was the product of the cross that was the joy set before Jesus that allowed him to endure The cross, the process of going to the cross wasn't joy, but the product was the redemption of his people, restoration to his father, and now we, the people of God, through the eyes of faith, this is where it gets hard. We have to look beyond the various trials of life to a surpassing joy that even if that trial doesn't wane, even if the sickness doesn't go away here, that there is a joy set before us that will allow us to endure now. Because this, this day, this life, is a momentary light affliction compared to the eternal weight of glory and joy on the other side. That's what you see in 2 Corinthians 4. Let me read that to close. Take this as God's word to you. So we do not lose heart, Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. There's the joy. As we look not to the things that are seen in these various trials we have, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, they're temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. 
as we get set to take communion together, uh, I just want to say a couple of things really plainly. If you're not a Christian in this room, I'm so grateful that you're here. I'm so grateful that you're here uh, because I have no better news that I can give you that uh, it's not, not by any work that you can do or have done that you can be right with God. But you can be forgiven, made new, made a part of God's family by gazing in faith at the finished work of Jesus. And if you haven't trusted in Christ to be the one who saves you, makes you new, the one who pardons your sin, communion is not for you. Please don't take this if you're not a Christian. Because ultimately, this is a proclamation and a a remembrance. We proclaim that it's only Christ that we have and it's only Christ that we need. His body pierced for us. His blood shed for us. And we come together as a family of faith to take this together. If you're not a Christian, don't take this. It's just a ritual or in any way thinking that it makes you right with God. It's only your faith that will do that, your faith in Jesus. And family, for those of you in this room who are believers, from that passage in Hebrews 12, one of the things that happens in communion is that we do freshly set aside the sin that so easily entangles us. We examine our hearts and we lay them down once more to be confronted by the grace and the goodness and the forgiveness of God. They wouldn't be living and trying to live in two places with one foot in the world and one foot in the church. So take this seriously. Don't take the grace of God for granted. That Jesus did endure the cross, despising its shame for you. So don't be too quick to come up here and just enjoy the grace of God. Examine your heart. See if there be any sinful way within you and allow God to do a purifying work even in this moment, this morning. And having done that, then come. Grab these elements. We'll take them together as a church family. We're going to dim the lights a little bit just so the centrality of the cross is highlighted behind me. Why don't you take a minute and just do business with God?